Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. And today we're continuing our series in Truth and Life Today. And we're going to be talking about a marriage, divorce, and adultery. Uh, so it's an important subject that I know you'll, uh, you'll appreciate what Dr. John has to say. But we also want to make sure that you know where you can hear Truth and Life Today. So you can go on our podcast at iTunes, Truth and Life Today, uh, our YouTube channel, or just go to backtothebible.ca and listen to us online. And there you can also submit your questions for future episodes. So let's go on today. Uh, Dr. John, welcome. Yeah, great. Let's uh, let's do it, Ben. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a great day, but it's a really important and difficult topic. So I guess right off the bat, we should say we're not going to be able to address every issue. Yeah, I, I think some people are just going to be you know, not satisfied with all the answers that we give, but we're doing our best and we're trying to remain biblical. So that's, Amen. Amen. Yeah. Uh, one of the things we thought we'd talk about right off the bat was uh, when it comes to marriage, Let's 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 be honest. Marriage is not easy. Yeah, it's tough. You know, I, we've had this conversation in the past, and you know, John Wesley, one of the great evangelists of the 1700s. I mean, surely, I mean, his evangelistic uh, crusades um, uh, changed the face of England, and I would argue America as well. Mm-hmm. Um, had, a, by all accounts, a, an exceptionally difficult marriage. I think, if I remember the story rightly, he refused at one point in time to share the Lord's table with his wife. He actually refused her at church because she was too carnal. And uh, I I wouldn't recommend that, but it tells you of how difficult that marriage actually was. And yet in spite of that, how God used that man. So, you know, I I think somehow uh, we're we're talking about the ideal and we want to always get there. But let's also recognize that we don't want to just rain on everybody's parade and say, if you haven't got your marriage right... I mean, you know, you've got no use in the kingdom at all. We don't want to say that. Yeah. So I would suppose what we would say is that even in the very best of marriages, even with people that are both godly people seeking after Jesus, there's going to be bumps in the road. Yeah, it is always bumpy because two sinful people get married, and uh, they didn't realize how sinful they were until after they were married. And then, aha, it was just like exploded on them. And they said, wow, you're more sinful than I thought you were. Yeah, and uh, yeah. so that—that's a lot of our problems, sure. So let me ask you a personal question. Yeah, uh, what do you think is the is the sinew that holds your marriage together? Yeah, uh, I've often called Kathy my fellow soldier in the gospel. Um, uh, we had a common vision together when we got married uh, that we were getting married for the sake of the gospel and to the glory of Christ. Uh, so the Ephesians five passage that. The husband and the wife form a role. The husband is to lead his wife as Christ leads the church, and the wife submits to her husband as the church submits to Christ. Both of us uh, grasped a hold of that. We thought that was, that, was, that was what God was calling us to do. We were to play out in our relationship the relationship of Christ to the church. And, and I think that was huge. It was, it was huge. It was the, the bedrock on which we stood. And I know that you feel the same way. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, people might look to you and say, well, you know, you've taken on a, a unique role or a calling in your life. You know, you've ministered for 35 plus years. You've been a pastor. And now you uh, are the Bible teacher for Back to the Bible Canada. But I think that same calling within marriage can be the same for anyone, regardless of what their vocation oh, yeah. is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That is... That is what Paul has, you know, when he talks about Ephesians 5, about marriage, he ends that passage by saying, I'm talking about Christ and his church. Yeah. So that becomes the, the key issue that he's addressing. So, you know, the, the, the way in which Christ relates to his church is the way in which every single believer is to play out the details in their marriage. Yeah. So can I ask you a blunt question? 
what's the problem with marriage today, yeah. even within the church? I mean, we we sometimes have figures that we that we banter about. Uh, you know, fifty percent of all marriages end in divorce. That's just not true. Um, we often also banter about a, a figure that says, you know, uh, Christians get, are getting divorced as often as people in the world. That also is not true. So let's not make the situation worse than it is. In fact, Christian marriages do better than non-Christians uh, because non-Christians, many of them don't even bother to get married. And so those people aren't factored into all of the breakups that are there. So as a matter of fact, Christian marriages do significantly better. That's not to say that we don't have significant problems. But uh, let's at least rejoice that there is uh, uh, still a great many believers who are faithful. And so let's, let's be thankful for that. Yeah. What do you think is the cause in, in, the, in the culture in general mm-hmm. with just this increased amount of, of adultery that takes place within marriage? Yeah, that's such an important question. Uh, I do know that we now live in North American culture in a sexual soup. Everything is sexualized. Uh, children are now being educated to, you know, to, to ask themselves, what are my sexual preferences? I mean, before they reach puberty, they already know far more than, I mean, you and I knew when we were kids. I mean, you know, you know where do babies come from? I doubt that very many children are asking that today. Yeah. So we, we have sexualized everything and every relationship. Uh, we've made every computation of sexual interaction normative. And so I would argue that that has huge implications. I would argue also that men and women are now working more closely together than ever before. And so you might have an office colleague of someone of the opposite sex, and you're called upon to work closely with them. And so it's very natural for these feelings to develop. So if there is not in an individual, a man or a woman, a built-in barrier that says, this far we will go and no further. Um, So in other words, I mean, I made a barrier, Ben, I don't know what you did, but in my life, I made this barrier that said, I won't go out with a colleague uh, for lunch together, just the two of us because I think that builds a level of intimacy, and I was not ready to have that happen. I never believed that a man-woman relationship was like a relationship with another male colleague. I never believed that. Yeah. Um, so I was always watchful for those things and, and, and deliberately kept uh, women who are not my mother, sisters, wife, daughters, grandchildren, you know. Uh, it, I would keep those women deliberately at some emotional distance. Yeah. Um, and, and built a, a, a barrier in my own life that way. Yeah. I'm going to make a bit of a generalization, but I have a perspective uh, that the church doesn't deal well today uh, in situations where adultery is taking place. Yeah, we, we went from a time in the church where it seemed like there was an instant excommunication yeah. to a day now where I have noticed a great many churches paying no attention. So we went from, I'm going to argue, uh, overreacting and not discipling someone, leading them to repentance, uh, looking for renewal, uh, taking that compassionate loop, uh, to now it's just as lacking in compassion because it seems to me that a lot of churches just don't care when people commit adultery. Uh, We should view it as a very serious thing indeed. Uh, In fact, Jesus does. That's, I think we're going to get to that. Yeah, yeah. 
So what do you think, I guess, yeah, getting to the biblical perspective of things, what is a biblical perspective uh, for a Christian couple and one falls into the sin of adultery? What ought we do? Well, I know that, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus, you know, I know this gets into the divorce question probably prematurely, but let's get mm-hmm. there. Uh, you know, we've got Matthew 5, uh, beginning at verse 31. It, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of, the Greek word here is porneia, sexual unfaithfulness, probably not a bad way of uh, translating that. Um, caught makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus seems to leave an exception clause for adultery. Now, before we get into that exception clause, let's understand that apparently of all the sins that we commit against each other in marriage, and as we've already said, like sinful people get together when they marry, but the sin of adultery, Jesus puts it in a special category Uh, so special that he openly puts an exception clause and allows for the dissolution of the marriage at this point in time. He will make the point he does not allow for dissolved marriages except, he says, uh, when there is a case of marital unfaithfulness. So it seems to me that adultery indeed is a great crime against the other, a great crime against the other. In your ministry experience, um, prior to that, having to take place or that taking place. Certainly, we're looking at trying to restore a marriage, even if adultery has taken place. Absolutely. Um, I know that years ago, James Dobson wrote a book, and it was called Love Must Be Tough. And I, I know it's an older book, but I think still it's... I've seen very few books like it. I mean, he argued that sometimes the person who is the innocent party... And might I add here, Ben, that there really is an innocent party in adultery... I mean, we do a very bad thing to the innocent party. We always say, well, you know what? I mean, you may have been cold toward, and that might all be true, but that didn't force that person to commit adultery. The person who commits adultery must own the sin entirely and not make the other person guilty for what they've done. And, And unless that gets so clearly said, I believe there's no help for those couples. So I think we need to recognize that the person who's committed adultery has to own that, and then also the ramifications behind that. I would argue that the person who's committed adultery needs to tell his or her spouse, this is what I've done, and I want to repent of that in your presence. Mm -hmm. They probably should tell their children. They should tell key people in, you know, say they got a home group or some, you know... People should become involved and recognize that a violation of God's intention for the marriage was done here, and it's of a serious nature. When repentance happens like that, I think there's a way back. But that was Dobson's point in Love Must Be Tough. When we simply sweep it aside and say, I'm sorry, it didn't mean a lot, it was just an affair, I'm going to clean that up, and just, you know, we have all those words of distancing ourselves from the, the responsibility of this sin, then we make it so easy for the sin to occur again. So I think love must be tough, and we must see adultery as something different than all the other sins that we do. It's sort of a bit of a departure, uh, but as I have observed these types of things happening in churches, and them almost feeling like they're being swept under the carpet because, uh, I don't know if it's because the leadership doesn't want to deal with discipline, 
or they don't want to have to recognize that it's going to cause bumpiness within the congregation or whatever the case might be. But do you think there's a reason why we don't seem to deal with it well? Yes, I think you have might have put your finger on one of the things, and that is I think church discipline is also a difficult matter in great many churches. I mean, the fact is that we never actually excommunicate anyone mm-hmm. uh, tells me not that everyone's behaving so well or that people are so repentant immediately, but rather that we are afraid to get involved in people's lives. I mean, there might be. I mean, sometimes churches are afraid of even a lawsuit. Yeah. Um, but I think regardless of the consequences, I think we need to take discipline seriously. We need to call people for repentance. We need to call them into a, a cycle of renewal of their spiritual lives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if they adamantly refuse us, and, you know, I mean, I would call for churches to be gentle, gracious, recognizing that we're all sinners. But when we do this, when we call people to repent, we actually mean it. And if a person says no to repentance, we will not have you a part of a church. I would even argue that when a church accepts membership, they ought to find out if the person has been excommunicated from another church and find out why that is. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that should all be a part of it so that when we do that, we take adultery to the level I think that the Bible takes it. Now, is it just me or do you think that the whole idea and definition of excommunication is very, very foreign to the regular person sitting in the pew? Most people think it's an unloving act. It's just uh, self-righteous, hypocritical judgment on someone else. And uh, we even have our own scripture text, you know, um, judge no one, right? Uh, That kind of thing. Whereas we forget when Jesus actually says, make right judgments, uh, he wants us to make right judgments. So... I think that we need to get beyond the fact that some of us think that if we're a part of a church, they have no business asking questions of my spiritual life. And the answer to that is not only they have a business doing it, they have an obligation by God to ask those questions. Mm. It ought to be a place of spiritual safety to be in a church. That means people will love us enough to get into our lives. So the act, the act of excommunication is really about restoration. Yes, that is the goal. That is yeah. the absolute goal. And we're yeah. not looking to kick people out. We're recognizing some pe- times people will not repent. Yeah. Let me ask you a, a couple of specific incidences, uh, how we would or should deal with this. Uh, let's say the uh, couple that gets married, both are unbelievers. Yep. One becomes a believer. Uh, what is their responsibility to the other spouse? Yeah, it's fascinating. That passage, I mean, that is actually spoken of Mm-hmm. In the scripture. So if I can find 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I yes, I had my marker here to it, anticipating this question. You know, it's, it, let's listen to what Paul says. He says, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So here we have clear teaching in scripture so I think what, what's, what's intended here is that, you know, in the day in which this was written, a great many people were coming to faith in Christ. And uh, sometimes, you know, a husband would come to faith or a wife would come and, and the spouse would not. And then also in the time of persecution, suddenly everything changes. Yeah. You know, suddenly your spouse went from being an accepted member in your culture to being a pariah. And so, you know, you may want to distance yourself. And so that unbelieving spouse might want to divorce immediately. 
Um, and in that case, Paul says you should let that, him or her go. You know, God has called us to live in peace. But if they are willing to consent to live with you, you must not divorce them. And so in our day, we would simply say, if you come to Christ and your spouse is not, your calling is to continue to live with your spouse as long as God gives both of you life. So that marriage is for life. That's how God intended it. So let's like take another specific example. How about uh, um, the individual uh, who commits adultery and... Uh, um, what should be our reaction? Should our first reaction be to look towards divorce? Yeah. And what happens to the spouse that was the innocent party? Here's the tougher question. Uh, can they be married again? Yeah. Well, let me take the tougher question first. Okay. And uh, let me say the answer is, I think in the scripture, an unequivocal yes. Um, the innocent party um, having... You know, often what will happen is that a spouse commits adultery. Then the marriage is, is dissolved. Then, uh, you know, that spouse is off living with someone else or married to somebody else. Yeah. And according to the Scripture, if the, the person is, you know, you have pa- passages in Jeremiah, you have other passages in which, you know, is not the land utterly defiled, you don't take that person back. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the marriage is dissolved. It's over. So when Jesus in Matthew 5 speaks about giving a certificate of divorce, one has to remember that in that day there are not divorce courts as there are today. Yeah. And indeed, in, in uh, the book of Deuteronomy, where Jesus is quoting from, you know, a person would only have to say several times to their spouse, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and that's done. I mean, there's nothing legal about it. Uh, it's just done. So what happened in the Old Testament law is that in order to prevent this rashness in divorce, that a certificate was demanded. So one had to actually go and have one drafted out. So that gave time to think about whether or not one really wanted to do that kind of a thing. Sure. So that's the background of this. So when Jesus says that once the adultery has happened and a certificate of divorce has been given, so then the person who is innocent is free to remarry because Jesus says that they do not sin then, mm-hmm. you know, so should they remarry. So, so I think that we need to remember that and, and we, we should be gentle and gracious. So here I'm not talking for laxing or relaxing the idea that, you know, that, that marriage is not a, a, an important institution. But we need to recognize that adultery is such a sin against the marriage that if it is unrepented of, it does divorce the marriage and dissolves it entirely. Yeah. Would you say adultery is the only reason for divorce? Yeah. I mean, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul adds another reason, which is the reason of the desertion of the unbelieving spouse. Okay. And so he then uses the word, in that case, the believer is not bound. It's an interesting word. You know, often you have the words like in Jesus of binding and loosing. So binding is the binding of the marriage. When you're not bound, it means it's been loosed. Mm-hmm. The marriage is now loose. The bonds are gone because the unbeliever has said, if you're going to live for Christ, I'm leaving. And so at that point in time, Paul says, you know, the, the believer is not bound in that marriage. So it would seem that, therefore, uh, in the Scripture, you have these two exceptions. One is, I would argue, not just adultery, but unrepented of adultery. person will not repent. Mm. And will not live 
in, in, a, in compliance to the Word of God. And the second is you have an unbeliever who simply leaves because they're going to leave. In either one of those cases, the marriage is dissolved. And once the marriage is dissolved, it no longer holds the individual. You know, we uh, want to leave on, a, I think, a positive yeah. note today uh, because it's difficult. Marriage is difficult, but marriage just isn't between two individuals, is it? God's got to be involved for a successful marriage to take place. You know, Ben, there's a reason why we have public marriages. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we could, I guess we could have marriage where a man just says to a woman, I marry thee, and then that's done, Right. But we invite family to be there. We invite friends to be there. We invite a minister to be there. And the minister says, before God and these witnesses. So, you know, the Bible always recognizes that marriage is a social contract. If our marriages are failing, then the culture as a whole begins to fail. Children go through a very difficult uh, period of time. So uh, we would argue that, that marriage is more than just between one man and one woman. It, it enhances a culture, but it's also a covenant that a man and a woman make before God. Um, it is the first institution that God puts into place for the human family. I mean, after that, he gives us an institution of government and the institution of whole cultures. I mean, there are institutions that God places for the human betterment. The first of all institutions is marriage. God intended the betterment of you and I and all of the culture by by making marriage normative in the human family. Well, you know, we've just probably scratched the surface today. Uh, But no doubt... We've emphasized the significance of the role of marriage. And uh, we just want to thank you, Dr. John, again today. And uh, join us again next week as we continue Truth in Life today. And we're going to be asking a, a random number of questions that have come in from our listeners. So we look forward to talking about suffering about baptism, uh, about issues of the Holy Spirit, demon possession. There's a whole gambit of stuff next time. Thanks so much, Dr. John. We hope you're enjoying the new Truth in Life Today show with Dr. John Newfeld. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode each week. But we want you to be involved in the show. To submit your own personal questions to Dr. John, you can email us at info at backtothebible.ca or find us on Facebook by searching Truth in Life Today.